Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Dr. Darlene Crone Todd. Hi, Darlene. Are you there? Aloha. Hello, Amanda. Hi. Um, How about you start off by giving a brief introduction for our listeners? Okay. Well, I'm, as you said, I'm Darlene Krontot, and I'm currently a professor in psychology at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts, the home of the witch trials. So it's a really interesting place to observe human behavior, especially now as we get into our tourist season between summer all the way through to the end of October. But it's also a really cool place to come and study behavior analysis because we started our master's program here just four years ago, which I currently coordinate. And I'm the incoming Department of Psychology chairperson as well. You have a lot of things on your plate there. (laughs) It's quite impressive. And we connected when I lived in Massachusetts, and um, I'm happy to still be in touch with you. Some of the current work that we were recently talking about was um, the topic of gaslighting, and I thought maybe today we could start our conversations there with, with your interest in that paper. Sure. Well, thanks for asking about that. And, um, I just want to say, as you said, our, we first connected here, I think, through one of the regional conferences, and then I got interested in and went out to your doctoral dissertation defense. Um, so that was uh, pretty cool to see the work that you had done and the work that you're doing since. So I think that that's really neat. Um, So thanks for this opportunity. Uh, Gaslighting is kind of interesting because it's one of these terms we've heard about in popular culture. And by the way, that's a course I like to teach from time to time is behavior analysis and popular culture. Um, So gaslighting is something we've heard a lot in the news over the last few years. Um, And most people don't realize that it actually was a term that came out of a 1944 movie, Gaslight. And this is going to be a spoiler alert, but Charles Boyer plays a scheming love interest to Ingrid Bergman. And um, the sort of backstory is that this guy, played by Charles Boyer, um, you know, sort of romances the young Ingrid Bergman with her not realizing that he originally killed her aunt for her jewels, but he was not able to find them after he murdered her. So he got away and then he has this like long game plan to sort of marry her and get into the house and then make her believe that she's insane so that while he's doing that, he's still searching for the jewels. Um, And that's all I'll tell you because I don't want to give the full spoiler alert for the movie in case people want to watch Gaslight. But today we use that term in popular culture to refer to what people are doing when they're trying to make someone else question reality. Now, what does that mean as behaviorists? And I've actually written about this in the Operance magazine, which is available for free from the B.F. Skinner Foundation. Um, But When people engage in gaslighting behavior, they're basically systematically denying verbally or otherwise the validity of one's reports of events and statements that actually did occur. And so the attempt is to convince the victim 
instead that they're crazy, that no, that didn't actually happen. Uh, the term in many of examples of it is covered extremely well in Sarkis's, uh, Stephanie Sarkis's book, Gaslight. Um, but we might notice many behavioral signs that Sarkis notes. Um, including blatant lying or denying what was said, despite there being witnesses or proof. The other thing that somebody does who engages in gaslighting behavior is they will actually use positive reinforcement unpredictably. So it kind of keeps you off guard. On the one hand, you have this person saying, no, you know, this didn't happen or this is your fault or, you know, it happened this way, um, and just denying all reality or trying to make you believe an alternative reality and at the same time they may sometimes be being very pleasant or helpful to you. Um, another thing they might do is align with others to garner support for their positions against the victim and they might make statements that in fact the victim is crazy or lying. So they're trying to paint the victim as somebody who's unstable or crazy or insane. What's interesting is, you know, if, we, if you were a student of psychology, and Skinner wrote about this a lot, you know, what Freud would have called a defense mechanism in psychodiagnostic paradigm, Skinner would have, we would recognize this in the Skinnerian system as behaviors that are escape or avoidance behavior. So quite often, as in the case of the movie Gaslight, um, the gaslighter is trying to escape or avoid punishment, or they're trying to gain access to reinforcers. So I like to think about this in terms of a functional analysis of the gaslighting behavior. So what is the context in which it's occurring, and what is the thing that sort of cues the gaslighting behavior, and also what's reinforcing it or um, in some way. So is it leading to positive reinforcement or is it leading to escape or avoidance behavior? Um, it's, and, and it's more likely to happen, of course, if it's not being punished or if they're gaining access to the reinforcers. Um, another movie that I recently watched where you would see a good example of gaslighting is Girl on a Train. And that was also a book. Um, and that's another, if, if people get a chance to watch that, they'll see some pretty egregious examples of gaslighting um, on the part of one of the characters, I, I, on the part of the ex-husband. But I, that's all I'll say with that because I don't want to give away too many spoilers either. Now, the problem with this, I, I got interested in this because of my interest in culture and diversity and equity. And you know, when you're working in different settings, different people may um, question your leadership or your supervision or other types of behavior and, and either try to call into question whether you're good in those roles or they may also be trying to gain access to their, those roles themselves by making other people look bad. So it's something I observed over the years in just watching how people operated in organizations. And I, I think it's a really interesting area for behavior analysts to take up um, because, you know, it's, there are limited power and resources. And as Skinner points out in many of his writings, you know, all the different systems, um, people do use power and they use resources 
and they use punishment and they use these types of aversive control procedures um, even when we don't want them to or we wish it were otherwise sometimes a bad system can create the bad behavior um, I think there was a great quote I heard at the Association for Behavior Analysis when I was talking to somebody else the other day, when you put good people in bad systems, the system always wins. So I think that if you're thinking about gaslighting, you'd have to think, what is the system that creates the gaslighting behavior and how can the system be changed? I think that's kind of the introduction that I would have to talking about gaslighting behavior. When I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking of a lot of parallels with things like politics. Um, and I think about it as politics in the workplace or politics in policy and government. And I think about systems change that I've been involved with. And it's really helpful to conceptualize it from a behavior analytic viewpoint, looking at the function. And I think many times in the experiences I've had, it has been that avoidance of an aversive, right? If somebody has done something that maybe they shouldn't have or should have been done differently, uh, it's best if no one finds out, right? That's a kind of a threat to them. But it's also really challenging to think about systems, right? A lot of times people will say the government or the large group of whatever, you know, sanction or, or section. And it's, you know, organisms, organizations are made up of individual people. But just like you said, you know, bad systems will win against good people every time. So how do we go about contacting or changing systems if we're not in a position or or how do we get into a position? Um, any insight into, like, what some strategies would be uh, or are you just suggesting it's more of an area where analysis is needed? Well, that's a great question, Amanda. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the... 20, what is that now, a $65,000, $24 million question, I guess. Um, you know, if you think about a systems perspective, I think you kind of have to take it multi-pronged, right? Because I think you just gave many good examples of places where we would see systemic behavior uh, for better or for worse. And, of course, any system is comprised of the individuals within the system. So that's the constellation of individuals who come into the system with varying histories of reinforcement and punishment um, in, in their own history that leads to the type of behavior that they're likely to engage in or unlikely to engage in. And then who ends up kind of running things either on the face of it, behind the face. I always like, by the way, when you think about systems, think about Game of Thrones or House of Cards. Because in both of those um, fictional accounts, you can sort of see that there are people in power, but then there are people behind the scenes who are running the power. Uh, who The people who are on the face in power don't really realize that these other people are sort of pulling the strings and making things happen, or they are still led to believe that they're in charge. So any system could have people who are actually in charge and are the face of being in charge, or they could have other subsystem routines going on behind the scenes that are actually creating part of the havoc that's going on. Um, so I think understanding the system and describing it and understanding how the pieces work is really important. So for us to really understand what the nature of a system is, we have to understand and study 
and really know how to apply our science of behavior in a systems analysis. So I think that that really behooves, in other words, it's good for us to be able to um, do that type of complex study as behavior analysts. So actually understanding organizational behavior and um, elements involved in supervision that affect our behavior and how our behavior is affected within those systems, I think is really, really important as a first step. And then once we start getting more people who understand those systems approach and the contingencies and meta contingencies that take place, um, then I think, you know, we can, we can look to that literature and we can start to think about how to prevent and change the behavior in those systems. Well, thank you for answering pretty much all of my life's questions, right? <laughs> I mean, that was a lot that I put on your plate there with that lead-in. Um, but I also think something that's common with the theme of behavior analysis is hope, right? And the idea that this can be studied, this can be evaluated, this is an empirical uh, set of empirical studies or investigations, and then we can maybe identify ways in which to achieve change. Um, in an article that I published or co-authored, we talked about the practice to research, research to practice gap in that it's typically 17 years on average before medical or other scientific discoveries uh, are, are unearthed and then are adopted. And so I think one of the kind of difficulties here is that it's always a moving target. And <laughs> can we get things implemented as quickly as we are unearthing them? Um, in some of your other areas of research and studies, you've talked a lot already about um, diversity and pop culture. Um, what are some of the areas that you really enjoy teaching about and, and why those topics, or how did you get into those areas of interest? Oh, in pop culture? Sure, or anything, really. I mean, I've okay. mentioned that one, so I knew that yeah. was one. <laughs> can, I, can I come back to the article that you talked about with that sort of theory practice gap? Yes, of course. Cause, because I think that's really important. Um, and I just want to touch on that before we go on to the next thing that you just asked about. Um, I think that sometimes when people are looking at the basic research or theater, theoretical work that's coming out of a particular discipline, they tend to say, okay, but how do you solve my problem right now? And... Um, I think that part of what we need to do in science and application and sort of the translation between those two is help people understand that while scientists and theoreticians are working things out to come up with a better solution, sometimes that takes a little bit of tinkering around and it's not always going to be immediate. Just like, you know, we have the publication of Science and Human Behavior in 1953, but it's really the 1960s and 1970s before we start to see what was then called behavior modification working to help a lot of people uh, with behavioral problems. And similarly now we have things coming out um, in contingency analysis and complex systems analysis that are having application in organizations, uh, artificial intelligence, and other areas. Um, that can really be helpful, but, you know, you have to stay current on the, the literature and also um, be trying things out as well. So I just wanted to say that to kind of agree with, you know, what you've published, that it does take time um, and it takes people who can um, 
help gain access to that information and, and study it and learn how to use it. So it takes all those pieces. Thank you for that. Yes. I mean, I kind of glazed over that in hopes that maybe things could just, you could solve that too and say, yes, it'll be faster, Amanda, in the future. And here's how. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I also really appreciate that piece of the tinkering, right? And that's a lot of what I think of when I have the imagery of the F. Skinner's. It's tinkering. It was exploring and finding out things and then refining them. And that's a joy of human behavior for me or animal behavior, I suppose, if that's what you're working on. But that applied aspect of like it's achieving change and then tinkering or systematically studying or documenting and seeing where that change can take us. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And so where I um, was going earlier was just you seem so knowledgeable, and I know you are, on many areas. And I was curious what other areas of the science uh, interest you. Well, thank you for that kind compliment. Um, I think I'm always like a student of behavior analysis. The more I know, the more unfolds. And that's what I love about the field. I, I would have to say that I just love thinking about behavior analysis and I think about, I, I love thinking about the concepts behind it and thinking about how they can be applied. And I also really, really love comparing and contrasting it with other theoretical perspectives because that helps me hone sort of my own theories as well as um, understanding how we can account for, you know, other, other theoretical perspectives from a behavior analytic lens. Um, as a student, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I took all these courses, you know, I was taking intro to psych and I was taking physical and then cultural anthropology and I was taking political science, um, which I later dropped in my freshman year because I just didn't have time to take everything. Um, But I took a lot of different courses that all coalesced, including introduction to philosophy. And I remember thinking at the time as I learned stuff and I was thinking, man, learned about this evolutionary stuff and I learned about this and I learned about that. And then I would start thinking about putting those things together with um, evolutionary theory and behavior. And every time I would come up with like a new explanation, I I discovered that Skinner already wrote about it. (laughs) I was like, wow, darn, I had this new theory, but he's already written about it. But that also told me that I was like, on the right track in terms of my interests. And that was, you know, kind of cool. Um, At the same time, when I was doing my undergraduate um, studies, you mentioned something, which is my interest in popular culture. And at the same time I was an undergraduate, there were two television shows that my husband and I were watching together. And one of them was Star Trek Next Generation, and the other one was The X-Files. And both of these shows coalesced very nicely with my studies in psychology and behavior analysis because it seemed like every week there was something that I could really sink my teeth into to understand and think about um, the behavior of the characters and what was going on in their systems and how that led to this behavior or that behavior or different uh, concepts and thinking about them like how could I think about the various characters even though it's been presented in a humanistic or Freudian Uh, point of view or a cognitive point of view, how could I think about that from a behavior analytic perspective? 
So I think I've always enjoyed the basic science of behavior analysis and doing the basic experiments and then parlaying that into applied work later on, but also that conceptual, theoretical, philosophical stuff. That is like a big part of who I am as a behavior analyst as well. And I just enjoy taking it out and playing with it. As Skinner said, when you find something amazing, drop everything you're doing and spending it. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that captures uh, the excitement that we feel when we're seeing uh, the change in applications or that are possible. But I agree with you. I also find it pretty exciting to conceptualize and to think about things uh, beyond just sort of what's in front of me. And I often found that as I read Skinner, it changes my uh, understanding or interpretation every time, or it gets it deepens, I should say. But I also find in, you know, chapter four, right there, that's that thought that I had. And man, he had that a long time ago when I was much younger than I am or not even around. So it's incredible uh, to for me to make those connections and see someone who had somehow pieced it together. Um, well, I'd like to thank you for joining us today and for being on the podcast. And um, definitely I'll extend another invite right here on the show to have you back because there's so many more questions and so many um, more discussions about the meaning of life I think we should have. Um, but before we end the, sh the, the show or the call today, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share any resources or uh, groups or journal articles or anything that you'd like the listeners to kind of check out. Sure. Well, I am honored to have another invite back and happy to do that when it works out for both of us. Um, that'd be a great fun, I think, because we always have a good time talking um, about this stuff. Uh, in terms of resources, I would say the Operance Magazine at the B.S. Skinner Foundation. There's a whole bunch of great journals, a bunch of articles there that are great. Um, if you're interested in sort of uh, creative or higher order thinking. I have some articles that are available on uh, ResearchGate um, and also through Google Scholar, but if, I'm happy to send any uh, information out if people want to email me as well. Um, and then if people are thinking about, you know, studying behavior analysis at master's level um, in Salem, uh, feel free to contact me about that as well. Um, and the, I guess the best way is by email. Uh, which is just my first initial and last name. Uh, so decrone Todd at soundstate.edu. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Darlene. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can visit www.behaviorbabe.com. <laughs>